Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You can be seated. And as you do so, if you would like, you can look in your bulletin at the text uh, for today. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Or if you've got your own Bible, you can look there. If you need to, uh, you can use a pew Bible. But again, just remember our, our routine. Just uh, set that and leave that on the pew so we'll know which ones need to be, uh, need to be wiped off and cleaned. I'm going to tell on myself. And uh, it's, a, it's a moment in my life that I wasn't really proud, I'm not very proud of. It was a dangerous uh, rookie mistake. And it was a rookie mistake uh, of one who prided himself of being something of an experienced day hiker. Uh, as many of you know, I love to go to the Smokies and do uh, hikes there. And on my bucket list is to do the 900 miles of uh, trails that are in the Smoky Mountains. I'm nowhere near that, but I've got a, a few miles under my belt. And I um, was going, it was about probably two years ago, about this time of year to maybe mid-February. I was going on a trip by myself, staying at mom and dad's place there between Sevierville and Pigeon Forge, and I was going to try to get in about three hikes over a two to three day period of time. And one of the hikes that I was wanting to take was to go up to Mount Leconte, uh, Mount Leconte Lodge. There's a lodge on top of Mount Leconte, and there are multiple trails to go up there. Most of the trails uh, are about six, seven, eight miles in length. And so I was planning on doing that. Well, the morning that I had planned this all out, I dallied too much at the cabin. I probably drank a couple of extra cups of coffee that I should have just held off on. And then I made one or two stops on the drive from basically Pigeon Forge into and past Gatlinburg. It, the trailhead's not too far from downtown Gatlinburg. And I probably stopped at a, uh, maybe a Hardee's or Bojangles or somewhere like that. Got a biscuit. You know, you just had to have that nourishment before going hiking. You know, and I probably took too long. And I got to the trailhead a little bit later than I anticipated. Uh, I don't know exactly how much later, but I thought, well, I can make up the time. I can just hike a little bit faster. I can, uh, I can plow through this because I want to get up to the top. But, but if I should go the Rainbow Falls Trail and, and go up a few miles to Rainbow Falls, and if I should get to Rainbow Falls and look at my watch, and it's too late to go all the way up and back down, then I'll just turn around and I'll come back to the parking lot and get in my car and call it a day. Well, I made pretty good progress. Got to Rainbow Falls, beautiful, you know, it's cold, a little bit of ice, icicles hanging down. And I looked at my watch and said, I think I can do this. I think. I started doing the calculations in my mind. And um, the calculation that I typically use is I give myself, when I'm hiking mountains, I give myself about 30 minutes per mile. 
uh, give or take. And hopefully I can be somewhere between 20 and 24 minutes. And so I gave myself 30 minutes and did the calculation. Hey, yeah, I can do it. And so off I went. And I got uh, another few miles up the trail, and then I saw the beautiful snow. Oh, it was gorgeous. It was lovely. Yay, I could get up there, and I bet you the lodge is just going to be covered with snow, and all the little cabins will be covered with snow. There'll be nobody else there, and it will be just quiet and beautiful. But you know, slow slows you, snow slows you down. It, it slowed me down. I shaved off. I didn't. I had shaved off a couple of minutes by that point, but now I started to add the minutes, and I got up to Mount Lacan about 30 minutes later than I had hoped. It's not too bad. I said, "Well, maybe I can, uh, you know, I can pick up the pace because it's downhill from here, and I can gain some time going downhill. So I think I'll just sit here, sit here for a little bit and enjoy." And I did. I found one of the porches, sat there for about 15 minutes, and I began to feel a little bit um, pressed, and I thought, I probably need to hit the trail. So I got back on the trail. I've already made, I don't know if you've noted, but I've already made two mistakes. Uh, I went past Rainbow Falls, and I lingered too long at Mount LeConte Lodge. And I headed back down. And if you know that trail system, the, the last portion right before the lodge is actually called Bullhead Trail. And I went back down, and I got to the intersection with Rainbow Falls. And I stopped, and I paused, and I scratched my head, and I said, I wonder, uh, I can't remember exactly, are these trails about the same length? I think they may be. And I think I've read that since the fires of 2016, the vistas from Bullhead are great. Calculations in my head, bullhead, third mistake. Uh, I'm going down bullhead, I go down about a mile or so, and I hear somebody gaining on me. First person I'd heard since Rainbow Falls. And here's this hale and hearty young man. He is making haste. And he passes me. I stand to the side. And I'm thinking, why is he going so fast? I look at my watch and I think, oh, I, think I, I think I'm fine. I get down a little bit further, and about that time, the clouds were rolling in. And the clouds were as thick as the, 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 the what was that this morning that we had? What do we call those? In the, the fog. Thank you, buddy. The fog, or the clouds in this case, grew thick. And those vistas, gone. No vistas. And the clouds grew grayer and grayer, and I looked at my watch, and I recognized at that point, I wouldn't be able to finish those next four miles before it was dark. And within about a half a mile, it's dark. And my heart's pumping, and I'm praying, and I, I did one good thing that day. I brought with me a headlamp. I put it in my day pack. And I pulled out that headlamp and I prayed, Lord, may these batteries last all four, <laughs> all four miles. But again, it's cloudy and dark. And I put the headlamp on, turn it on, thank the Lord there was light. But I could see maybe this far in front of me. You have to slow down when that's the case. And I slowed down. And I thought, I still, maybe I can make it, maybe I can get down before it gets too terribly dark on this cold trail, 
in the middle of the Smokies, no one else around. And then I, I hit the first blowdown. What's a blowdown? Trees that have fallen across the trail. This has been the area that was burned over with the fires, so trees were unstable. And I thought, oh no, I got to either crawl over or under. I got over that first blowdown, and guess what? Another one, and another one, and another one. And that does what to your pace? It kills it. Slower and slower and slower. And by this time, I'm also realizing Bullhead's a longer trail than Rainbow Falls. And finally, with each excruciating step of my aching knees and feet, I began to hear a stream. I think, oh yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a stream crossing pretty close to the trailhead. But then I recognized, yeah, and the bridges across streams in the Smokies, if you've got a bridge, and thankfully there was one, it's a log with a flat top and a loose sort of railing on one side. And this particular bridge, high above the stream that was falling below it. And I made my way slowly across that bridge. And then I finally hit a gravel road. And I realized that God was gracious to this prideful, foolish guy. And finally, my headlamp hit the back of my Jeep. And I knew I was home. That ray of light, that beam of light was probably the best beam of light, physical beam of light in my life. I was so grateful for it. What beam of light are you grateful for? I know we all long for light. We long for morning beams to cut through the darkness of what we've been going through. What we've been going through. We've been going through what? A, a, a crazy, tough time. Social and political unrest economic and psychological pain and pestilence. Pestilence that for some people doesn't hardly register at all. And for other people, it kills them. If we think that's dark, and it is, and I don't want to dismiss it, but if we think the darkness we've been going through is dark, then it just shows you how little we understand of the plight of so many throughout the world today and the plight of so many in times past. And yet, going through that darkness gives us a better sense of true darkness, a better sense today than we had last year at this time, right? Think back, last year at this time, did, you didn't know what was ahead. I didn't either. And going through the darkness helps us better understand there is darkness in this world, and we long for light to penetrate that darkness. And that longing brings us to one of the most beautiful, majestic passages of all of Scripture. It brings us to John chapter 1. It brings us to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, known as the prologue to John's gospel. It's a prologue and it's also sort of an overture. It gives us all the themes that we see played out in John's gospel. It's an amazing passage. It's glorious. It's majestic. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's philosophical, theological. It's pastoral. It's a tour de force. It's words about the Word. It's, it's words about the Word and the light. 
The Word that is the light. The Word and the light that I always and you always and we desperately need. And so I want us to focus on the Word and then the light. In the beginning, that's how John starts. John's gospel begins with those same words, at least translated into English, as as the first book of the Bible began with. The book of Genesis, right? And there are numerous passages as you read through the gospel of John. It's pretty clear. John makes all kinds of Old Testament allusions that he just assumes his readers are going to pick up on. And here's one of those passages. In the beginning... And he knows his readers are going to pick up on that as an allusion to Genesis 1. And he knows his listeners or his readers are going to anticipate the next word. In the beginning, what? God. And yet he changes it up, doesn't he? What does he say? In the beginning, the word. In the beginning was the Word. Not God, but the Word. Now, you, you, you know your Old Testaments fairly well. You, you remember Genesis chapter 1. And you remember in Genesis 1, you remember that, sort, that repeated refrain that you hear throughout that account of God's creation of the, of the world, and particularly of, of the earth. And on each successive day, he said what? what? What are we told? We're told, and God said. And God said. And God said. Let there be this. And it came into existence, right? And John knows that. And he is, he's connecting his readers, his hearers to that passage. He is saying that that and God said and that said wasn't just breath. It wasn't just sort of an immaterial thing. It wasn't just noise. It wasn't just sound. It was personal. And God said, and the said was a person. The said was a hymn. That's what he says, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It was a personal word, a divine, personal word. And the word was next, notice, with God. This personal divine speech, this divine creative word was what? He was with God. Now, several commentators pick up on a point that we need to pick up on. With the word with, it is, it really in the English language, it's, it's somewhat inadequate to convey to us the, the true thought of John. The, the word is not just merely a sort of spatial reference. It's not merely that, you know, the word, this divine creative word was beside the Father. Spatially near the Father. But it's an idea of intimacy. It's an idea of of orientation. It's an idea of of being disposed towards someone. And maybe that's a better way to translate it. The word was toward God. 
And Vince Sinclair Ferguson uh, gives us, I think, a real helpful paraphrase. He says, think of it this way. The word was face to face with God. Face to face with God. And then Ferguson uses as an illustration our norms for Western etiquette. Think about a man and a woman. In Western etiquette, if a man and a woman lock eyes and keep that lock for a period of time, that's oftentimes an indication of what? Intimacy. Desire. The man desires the woman. The woman desires the man. Or, or take, take it outside of that sort of uh, man and, and woman sort of context and, and think of a, a parent, a mother, and a, and a child, a, a young son or a young daughter. And think of the, the father or the mother and the, the son or the daughter in the crowd and they get separated. And, and as, as they're, they're scanning around, they're looking for one another, the child's getting what? Concerned. But if, if there is a gap between people big enough to where the mother sees the son, their eyes do what? Lock on one another. And that child knows he or she is safe. The mother knows her child is safe. There's some intimacy there. And that's the picture we have here. The word was face to face with God. John is transporting us back before time. And he is saying that there, God the Father was looking face to face with the personal divine word. And if I might put it this way, their eyes were locked upon one another. And the love between one another was passing back and forth and received deeply. The word was with God. One more sentence, though, in that first verse. One more description in that first verse. And it's the most famous. It's the bane of many heretics, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was face-to-face with God. And what? The Word was God. The creative Word looking face-to-face with God was God, too. The creative divine word, the Logos, face to face with the Father, was God too. And what was implied before is now made explicit. The word was God. And John lays this teaching out for us at the very beginning of his gospel. And this teaching that he lays out before us, Jesus claims throughout the entirety of the gospel, doesn't he? And John will unpack that for us. Jesus will make divine claims. He would claim to be one with the Father, right? He would claim to be equal with the Father, right? He he would claim that he could do only that which the Father could do, right? Forgive sins. He could speak with the authority of the Father. He shared in the Father's eternal glory. In other words, Jesus quite clearly from the the account of John, claimed to be God. Now I want you to think back at the dictum of C.S. Lewis. Jesus, if John's right, Jesus is either a liar 
or he's a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. The, the naked option of a merely nice moral teacher that you can admire, that option doesn't exist if John's right. Here are your options. Either he's a con man liar, or he's a nutcase, or he is who he says he is. And Jesus claims to be God. So the question is, who do you say? that he is. But John's not merely interested in the claim of divinity. He's interested most clearly. But he's not merely interested in that claim of the word, the divine word being one with the Father or being one person or as we would say the Holy Trinity. John was also quite clearly ready to do philosophical battle with the Greek philosophers and the dualists of his day and down through the centuries. For notice verse 14. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became what? Flesh. Flesh. Human flesh. A human being. And dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But many of the Greeks of his day, for them, flesh, ugh, that's bad. The earthly, oh, that's what's fading away. It's just a prison to be liberated from. In their minds, the mind, the intellect, the spirit, that's what mattered. The philosophical Greeks of John's day, as one commentator put it, they had a saying. The saying went like this, Soma Sema. Soma Sema. The body is tomb. The body is tomb. There wasn't to them a salvation of the body, but a salvation what? From the body. They want to get rid of the body. They want to be liberated. And that sort of thinking, it still, has its, it still has its advocates in our day. And so oftentimes, unfortunately, it finds its way creeping into our own vocabulary. How many of us will say, oh, to be rid of this old body that keeps holding me back. Coming down bullhead, my knees are hurting. Each step was laborious. I had to tell myself in those last two miles, just take the next step, just take the next step, just take the next step. Shingles aren't any fun. Kidney stones, chronic kidney stones are not any fun. And I know what it means to say, oh, to be rid of this old broken body. But we've got to be careful not to denigrate God's good creation. God doesn't. The eternal word doesn't. The divine creative word doesn't know. Instead, he dives in to space and time. And he takes on what? Flesh. Body. Into the dark womb of the teenager Mary he went. The divine word dove, as it were, out of heaven 
into the womb of a teenage girl. Lewis gives a wonderful illustration. He says, imagine someone taking off their royal garments. I think it's Lewis. They take them off and they dive and they plunge into the water. And the first part of the water is fairly lit and it's fairly warm. But they keep diving and they go deeper and deeper and the water gets colder and the water gets darker and they keep going and they keep going all the way to the murky bottom and they snatch that person off of the ocean floor and they start going back up, going back up, going back up to the point that it seems like the lungs are going to burst and as soon as they, they, they crest out of the water and the person's saved. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's what the divine word is doing. The one who spoke supernovas and galaxies into existence dives into the womb, to the uterus of Mary, and he has a tiny soma confined in that uterus. And the story of Christmas continues. The wonder of Christmas continues. For you see, it's not merely about the word, but the word that was also and is also the light. John continues. He says, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but John the Baptist was the first witness to the light. The first public witness, as John frames it. The first, as it were, courtroom witness that Jesus was the light. And then John's going to come along at the end of his gospel, and he's going to become the second witness. He's going to become the second courtroom witness. And the two Johns, uh, the John the Baptist and the Apostle John, are both going to testify that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the one veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This Jesus, the God-man, he was and he is the light. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life. And again, that's a, that's a claim of divinity because he didn't have to be given life. He had life. He's the source of life. He is life. In him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And the light does what? Shines in the darkness. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacle, the Old Testament language. Another allusion to the Old Testament. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? Glory, the Shekinah glory of Almighty God. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The one with eternal, resplendent, blinding glory. The one from whom angels hid their eyes. The blazing light dove down into the darkness of Mary's womb and covers himself with a tiny body. And he would be laid in a manger. And in a body, he would grow as a little boy. And all you moms know what little boys do. They run around and they what? They fall and they scrape their knees. 
Jesus was a little boy. He was a little boy who would know of colds and cuts and the scrapes of youth. He would, he would reach those teenage gangly years. Sorry, teenagers. Sorry, teenage guys. But there, there are times where you're just gangly. Jesus was there. Been there, done that. In a body. The, 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 the eternal splendor and light of God the Son who spoke the universe into existence was clothed in a body. An adult body that will grow tired and hungry and thirsty. In a body with a human spirit. A human spirit that will be hurt by family members thinking he's nuts. A human spirit that will be hurt by the indifference of others. The harsh words, the rejection of others. A human spirit that will be saddened by the death of his friend. In a human body and spirit, the eternal word, the light, was clothed. More fully aware of darkness than any of us will ever be. And from the darkness of that womb and the darkness of that first night of his birth, and I, and I have to pause and make an aside here, one of the signs of Christmas is the beginning of the appearance of lights. People start putting those plastic candles with the bulbs, electric bulbs, in their window seals, don't they? They start stringing the lights on the house, on the gutter. They might put up stuff out in the front lawn. And then you think of churches that are lit by candlelight. And you think of light in the darkness. From McCaddenville uh, to, to Manhattan to the Christmas market of Munich. Light in darkness. And it's entirely appropriate. He was that light clothed in human flesh. From the womb in the first dark night to Gethsemane and his last night, the darkness was gathering. A darkness more dark than the darkness of my pride and my foolishness and my own sinfulness. John would go on to write toward the end of his gospel. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gave up his spirit, and he died. And his dead body was laid in a grave in a dark tomb at night. And it will remain in that dark tomb through dark Saturday. But as the beams of the morning began to push back the darkness of that first resurrection, Sunday, the truth of John 1.5, look there again. The truth of John 1.5 became clear. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not 
overcome it. The body of Christ was resurrected. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And the Easter and the Christmas message, as Tim Keller rightly puts it, it's not cheer up. If we all just pull together, we can make the world a much better place. We'll be able to put together a, a world of unity and peace. Let's just, let's just work together. We can do it. Rather, it's just the exact opposite. Things really are bad. And we cannot heal and save ourselves. Things really are dark. Nevertheless, there's hope. There's hope because the divine eternal word dove down into the womb of the Virgin Mary and the light clothed himself in human flesh. And he was born and he lived the life that we have failed to live, a life of perfect obedience. And he went to the cross and he died in the place of sinners bearing their penalty and the wrath of Almighty God that sinners deserve. And on the third day he was resurrected to new and eternal life, a life that we don't deserve, but that is a gift to us if we place our faith and trust in him. There is hope. Because the word took on flesh and the word is light. Or as the prophet Isaiah put it, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. But I like John's choices of tenses. Go back to verse 5. The light shines in darkness. Not that the light just shone in darkness. It did, but the light what? Shines, it continues to shine. And the darkness has not overcome it. Not that the darkness for a while didn't overcome it, but the darkness has not overcome it. And by implication, the darkness, what? Will never overcome the light that is Christ. I asked you all a question earlier. I said, I asked, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the divine word? Is he the incarnate Lord? Is he the light? Or is he a liar? Or a lunatic? If you answered Lord, I have another question for you. Have you received him? Have you received him? Have you received the light? What does John say? The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, particularly the religious ones, his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become not just people who are declared not guilty, but to become what? Children of God who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. 
if you have received the light, let me boldly, clearly, definitively say you are a child of God. You belong to God. He is your Father. And the Father loves His children. And so there's an implication here. That means that no matter the darkness of your heart, and my heart's dark, I don't know about yours, it's, mine's too far dark. And I recognize that on Bullhead Trail, I had too much pride, and I was foolish. And that was just, an, that was just a glimpse at my darkness. But it means... If I'm a child of God, if I've received Jesus as the light, it means that no matter the darkness within, no matter the darkness that is without, no matter what 2021 brings, that darkness will never overcome the Lord of my life. That darkness will never overcome, never master, never control the light. The light who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what might happen to me or no matter what might happen to you in 2021, and that could include going on a ventilator, and it could include dying, that light who is Jesus Christ will take me and you all the way home. This beam took me as far as a jeep. The light who is Jesus Christ will take me all the way home. Have you received him? If you have, he'll take you home too. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the second Sunday of Christmas. That's the message of the first Sunday of 2021. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Shine in our darkness. Lead us home. And until we arrive home, O glorious Lord, care for us. Protect us. Lead us and guide us. That we who are foolish and too dark would look to you, our glorious light, and be led by you more and more more and more towards home. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.